All right. Good morning. Um, plan this morning. I want to talk to you about uh, the Holy Spirit, um, and w- one of the things that motivated me to do this is um, in my own denomination. Um, just to give you a little bit of history and help you understand where I'm coming from, um, the man that started this thing called Nyack College, Alliance Theological Seminary. Uh, the man that's buried right over there, Dr. A.B. Simpson, was a Presbyterian, uh, was uh, an excellent theologian, but just had a passion to know God more deeply. Uh, he was impacted by D.L. Moody and the revival movements of the late 1800s and, um, and had an encounter with the Holy Spirit when he was pastoring a Presbyterian church in Louisville, Kentucky, that changed his life forever. Uh, he called it a crisis experience. Um, and remember, this is back in the uh, 1870s, long before the Pentecostal movement, the Charismatic movement. Uh, A.B. Simpson had this encounter with the Holy Spirit that took him deeper in terms of holiness and even in expectation of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, A.B. Simpson was preaching about the fact that we should believe that the Lord is going to restore the gifts to the church, that they should have never left. Long before the Pentecostal movement started in 1906 at Azusa Street, uh, in fact, it's recorded in 1882, uh, there was a woman in the uh, Gospel Tabernacle down in New York City that stood up and spoke in tongues during the service. And uh, A.B. Simpson said, uh, folks, this is that which was spoken of. We don't understand it, and I don't know how to pastor it, basically, but we shouldn't be afraid as the Lord begins to restore what is rightfully ours. And so there was just this expectancy that God was going to do something in terms of healing and prophecy and and moving in the Spirit. And uh, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, of which this school is a part, was founded on two primary principles. Number one, the deeper life in the Holy Spirit, that there's more that God has for us. And then secondly, world missions. And, uh, and I like that emphasis, those two emphases, because there are so many people, they, just, they want to go deeper with God, they want an experience with the Holy Spirit, they may want the gifts, but if they don't combine that with going out and giving it away and setting the captives free and preaching the gospel to the nations, then they become ingrown. Now the other problem is, and this is kind of what's happened in my denomination, is that there has been a moving away from... Uh, the mysterious. Last night, I think you captured it. We've lost our wonder, our sense of awe. And in my denomination, there was a fear. And part of the fear was because of the Pentecostal excess and the error and some of the craziness that certainly we know has gone on. We moved further and further away from that and decided that we were going to be a world missions organization. Now, I'm all for world missions. But if you go out there to try to get it done before you get it done to you in your deep in your heart then you become a superficial movement and uh, and so uh, I guess my mission within my own denomination uh, not only as the dean of the seminary but also I'm on the board of directors is to begin to call us back to our history and our heritage uh, and that is that we're a deeper life movement we're a movement where we should expect the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us and for years I've thought in fact I've said this My denomination has a great theology of the Holy Spirit. We just don't practice it. 
And I think that may be true for a lot of Christians. They have the right theology of the Holy Spirit, but there's not much in terms of practice. But in recent years, I've even been concerned that our theology is beginning to be a bit suspect and uh, naturalistic and kind of Western-oriented. And so this teaching that I'm going to do today um, was put together basically in response to, to that. And I've certainly gone beyond my own denomination, and it has application for all of us, but that's what we're going to do. And what I'll do is I'll teach for a little bit and then give you a bathroom break, and then we'll come back and we'll do some more, and then I think we'll close by going into your small groups, which uh, you've been assigned to. Does that sound all right? Do you need a bathroom break now, or are you okay? okay? I don't want to sit there and see you squirming, okay? Unless it's under conviction. So, All right. Um, Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this awesome time of worship, and now we give ourselves to you, to your word, to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have heard the story of the guy who uh, was desperate for a job and uh, was looking for, through the paper for uh, you know, something, anything, and he saw that the local zoo was advertising. And so he went to the zoo and applied for the job and uh, basically didn't know what they were looking for. And, and finally the zookeeper came in and said, yeah, the position that we need filled is that of a gorilla. And the guy looked and he says, well, I've never been a gorilla before, obviously. I don't know what you're... He says, look, we just, we're kind of short on gorillas. We got a suit for you. Just put on this gorilla suit. Go into the cage. Be a gorilla. And the guy says, all right, you know, I need work, so I'll do it. So he puts on this gorilla suit. He goes in. And he finds that he loves it. In fact, he's really good at it. In fact, he's the best gorilla in the cage. He's better than the real gorillas at being a gorilla. And uh, the crowds love this guy. And he begins to be one of the primary attractions at the zoo. And he likes to swing and taunt the other animals. And one of his favorite tricks is to swing on this vine out over the lion's den and taunt the lions, making them roar. And the crowds are gathering. I mean, it's just, it's a... A, a real economic boom for this zoo. Well, one day this guy has huge crowds watching him. He swings out over the lion's den. He's at the height of his swing when the vine breaks and he falls into the lion's den. Now, as the lions surround him, he forgets all about being a gorilla and he begins to shout, Help! Help! And all of a sudden the biggest lion pounces on him and whispers in his ear, Shut up, you fool, or we're both going to lose our jobs. Okay, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Um, here's what it has to do. Listen, it's not what's on the outside that makes a person a gorilla. It's, I mean, you can put on a suit, you can do... And, and uh, the reality is there has to be something deeper. And I, I believe that in our country and our nation that we have succumbed to a discipleship of peer pressure in many places where Christianity has become look this way, talk this way, act this way, vote this way, and that means you're a Christian. Uh, in fact, a recent survey by Barna uh, asking a series of questions about relationship with God and, and uh, who is Christ and a whole series of questions concludes that about 50% of the people that attend evangelical churches in the United States of America have never been born again. Okay, now, that's, that's critical. I mean, you think about it. In evangelical churches where the gospel is preached, what Barna concludes from the survey results that he received is that probably it's safe to assume that 
of the people in evangelical churches have never had a regeneration experience by a work of the Holy Spirit. So I, I want to talk about this this morning. I want to start with, um, oops, I didn't turn on my thing here. I want to start with a quote from T.S. Eliot. I found this a few years ago. To believe in the supernatural is not simply to believe that after living a successful, material, and fairly virtuous life, here, one will continue to exist in the best possible substitute for this world, or that after living a starved and stunted life here, one will be compensated with all the good things one has gone without. It is to believe that the supernatural is the greatest reality here and now. And, and I'm convinced that we have been settling in the Western church for a stunted life and experience in the Spirit. Uh, I believe that we were born again and birthed in the Spirit to be spiritual people and not just natural people. Uh, somebody said, and I think I have this quote later in the notes, I may be ahead of myself, that we are not primarily natural beings having temporary spiritual experiences. We are primarily spirit beings having a temporary natural experience. And so there's a change in orientation that has to happen in, in the church in America. Uh, we, we've got to recover the mystery, the wonder, and it's not just a fairy tale in this case, although I think those things can help to open up that part of our mind and our recesses that will receive true experiences in the Spirit. But we've got to begin to say, Lord, we want to live a supernatural life in the here and now, because that's what we're called to. So, what are the works of the Holy Spirit that take place on the inside of a person that transform them from the inside out? Uh, let me just walk through this. Uh, first of all, let's start even prior to conversion. What is the Holy Spirit about even before we're born again? Let me just, I'm just going to walk through a progression here. Uh, number one, the first thing he does is he convicts the world, non-believers, of sin. Okay? Um, Jesus said in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Um, and so Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is preparing people all the time. He's convicting them. He is speaking to them. Now, one of the things I need to ask is, God, give me eyes to see in my friends, in my co-workers, in, in people around me, who are you convicting? Who are you moving upon? And folks, listen, sometimes that person that is the most resistant and the angriest against the Gospel and you is the person that the Holy Spirit is most working in. Because a lot of that anger that may be coming out toward you is being stirred up because the Holy Spirit's doing something underneath the surface. Now, the biblical example of this is Saul. He was killing Christians. He was leading the teams to, to take them out. And yet the Holy Spirit was at work in this guy. In fact, even after he came to faith on the road to Damascus, it took a long time for the church to receive him because he was such an enemy of the gospel. So when you see somebody that is angry, like I'm praying for these guys that are writing these uh, 
anti-theism books. What's their Dawkins and Hitchens and you know God's going to get them, you know, because you know they're so out there that I have to believe the Spirit of the Lord is going. Watch this. I'm going to come around the back and I'm going. So I, I think we need to pray and intercede. And don't be put off when we see that, because the Holy Spirit's working even in the lives of non-believers. Moving on. Um, the second thing he's doing is he's drawing them to Christ. John 6 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, the drawing agent of the, of the Father is the Holy Spirit. He's leading them. He's prompting them. Let, let me share a story about this that happened to me. I was in the Poconos uh, a few years ago, I was skiing. It was in winter, and my wife and I were with a group of young adults, and uh, I got separated from everybody. And, uh, and I'm standing in this long lift line. And sometimes when I'm in a place like that, I'll just begin to pray this prayer. Father, show me who you prepared to receive the things of your kingdom. That's just a prayer I learned a long time ago. Father, show me who you prepared. Who are you preparing? Who are you drawing to receive the things of your kingdom? And, uh, and so I'm standing there in this line, and it's long. And I'm you know, kind of praying and enjoying the beauty of the day. And all of a sudden I notice that about four or five people up ahead of me is this young man in line. And he is cursing and swearing and taking God's name in vain, and it's just going on and on. And I notice he's drunk. And I mean, he is just sloshed. He is out of it. He is, you know. And all of a sudden I sense in my spirit, him. I've prepared him to receive the things of my kingdom. And I begin to argue with God. Have you ever argued with God? I said, Lord, listen, there's no way that guy is being prepared. Have you heard what he's talking about? Have you heard how he's talking about you? God, this guy is not ready. He's, you know, and I could not shake it. Him. I want you to speak to him. And uh, so I'm making excuses why I can't do this. Uh, there's people in between us, and it would be awkward. Well, all of a sudden, he cuts loose with a string of vulgarities that are so bad, he offends the people between us, and they drop out of line after waiting for 40 minutes. Okay? And literally, within the next minute or two, I am on a chairlift with this kid. Now, now I'm thinking, oh, man, okay? A chairlift is not the best place to witness to somebody that is cursing God, okay? You know, so I'm, I pray a prayer for my own protection, and I turn to him, and I literally say something like, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? It was horrible. There was no anointing on it. I'm just being honest. It was, you know, just something I learned somewhere, you know? And, and he looks at me, and he goes, how did you know? And he breaks into tears. And then I figured, well, God told me. God told me he was preparing you to receive the things of his kingdom. What are you waiting for? Well, here was the story. He was dating a pastor's daughter. She was missionary dating. I'm not recommending it, okay? Uh, and she had given him an ultimatum. This was it. Unless he surrendered to Jesus Christ today, she was dumping him. And they had both gone skiing together. She wasn't with him. And he had gotten drunk to spite her. He was so angry. But underneath the surface, it was the Holy Spirit that was working, that was drawing. And so I'm now getting ready to reel him in, you know, to lead him to Jesus. And the Lord says, he's not yours to harvest. Now I'm arguing, what do you mean he's not mine to harvest? I'm the one that took the risk on the chairlift to witness to the swearing drunk guy. But the Lord said, no, he's not yours to harvest. So I said, where's your girlfriend? And he said, she's at the top. She's waiting for me. 
And when we got to the top, he introduced me to his girlfriend. I told her what had happened. And when I skied off that mountain, they were kneeling in the snow. He was receiving Christ as his Savior. Okay? Now, folks, here's, that's one story. I, I'm telling you this. The Holy Spirit is at work in people that you're missing. And, and right now, Holy Spirit, would you begin to reveal to us that some of those non-Christians, some of those people at work, some of our family members that we think are the furthest away from the kingdom, the Spirit is convicting them, the Spirit is drawing them, the Spirit is preparing them, and it's time for us to begin to discern the activity of the Lord. He did it in us, He will do it in them. And so we need to begin to understand that. All right, now, the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Let's move to the point where something happens now within us. It's called regeneration in the scripture Um, but this is when uh, we come to a place where we surrender to the work of the holy spirit to the work of jesus christ and conversion takes place now probably the most famous uh, passage where this is described is john chapter 3 where jesus encounters nicodemus he comes to him at night Uh, now you're familiar with this but let me read it to you and i'll make a few comments Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, immediately, Nicodemus reveals that he has no understanding of his own scriptures. Because this was not a foreign concept. I'm going to show you in a minute that this was something, this concept of a spiritual birth, a, a new birthing within, was taught in the Scriptures. And Jesus is surprised that he doesn't understand it. And so Nicodemus has the same issue that I've talked about with most Western Christians. He's a naturalist. And he says, how in the world can somebody crawl up inside their mother's womb and be born again? That's basically where he goes. And Jesus answered, verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. For flesh, and notice the capital S, the Holy Spirit is the one active in this new birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the human spirit. Now, I want to use this as an illustration. And if you know anything about theology, I'm not necessarily advocating trichotomy as opposed to dichotomy just you know don't go there but just stay with me as an illustration Um, if you look at who we are our body is our sense consciousness okay that's what we can taste and touch you know that's our our senses the physical empirical reality Uh, the soul is our self-consciousness our mind our will our emotions okay and and then the spirit is our God consciousness. And when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, uh, it it was said that if they sinned, they were going to die. And there wasn't an immediate physical death, but the death that took place was their ability to commune with God. There was a spiritual death or a spiritual corruption of spiritual marring that took place so that that unbroken God consciousness communion was taken from them, stolen, as it were. Now, a few years ago, I had a a chiropractor 
who I had been going to, and I'd been sharing my faith with him, and he started to date um, a girl from a Christian family. And uh, he came to me one day and he said, all right, Ron, you've been talking to me about Jesus, you've been talking to me about Christianity, and my girlfriend's mother is, is a born-again lady, and she drives me crazy. Now, I knew his future mother-in-law, she drove me crazy too. Um, and he goes, I just want to know this, first of all, what does it mean to be born again? She keeps saying to me, you need to get born again, you need to get born again. What does it mean to be born again? And I think he said something like, like I'm supposed to crawl up in my mother's womb again. And so he, I literally started having the conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus with this guy. He says, my first question is, what does it mean to be born again? And secondly, if this happens to me, do I have to be anything like my mother-in-law? And I said, no. Please don't blame the way your mother-in-law is on the fact that she's born again. There's other issues there, okay? And uh, he says, all right, well then talk to me about what it means. So I took him to the narrative in Genesis, and I explained what happened, and I drew this diagram for him. And then I took him to Ezekiel, where it says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Notice it's a small s that there's, a, there's something new that's being birthed within the heart and life of a man and a woman. A new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now in essence what God is saying is this. Just having a spiritual nature was not enough for Adam and Eve. And so I'm going to birth a new spirit in you. I'm going to give you the ability to be a spiritual person, but you know what? I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within, in union with your spirit, and He's the one that's going to lead you and guide you and convict you. He's the one that's going to give you the power to live a spiritual, a truly spiritual life. There's a lot of talk about spirituality in our, in our day. To be honest, I think we should encourage it. There's a longing for something more than the natural and the mundane and the earthly. Um, And I do think we should encourage it. But just to be spiritual isn't going to save them. And and it's certainly not going to help them to rise above the level of the fall that they're all and we all are experiencing. There's got to be a supernatural work as well. And so I shared this with my friend Tony Panabianco, the chiropractor. And I never even got to the New Testament. He said... That's what I need. He said, all my life I've wondered why other people can understand and know God and I have never been able to know Him. And before I knew it, He was on His knees in my office. And He was one of the first people that I ever led to Christ without ever going to the New Testament. And uh, I just said, it's time to admit you're a sinner and that you have a darkened spirit and you need it to come to new life through the Holy Spirit of God. And he prayed and received Christ as his Savior, and and conversion happened. Another story about that is I was here teaching at this college. There was a young man named Matt. He was the son of a United Methodist pastor, the grandson of another United Methodist pastor. He came to Nyack to be the third generation United Methodist pastor. He was in my homiletics class, which is preaching, and his first sermon was horrible. And I thought, man, third generation preacher, something's wrong here, okay? And I thought maybe he didn't get the mechanics, so I worked with him on the mechanics and the structure and everything. His second sermon was worse than the first. 
And I'm like, man, what's going on? And so I said, Matt, you need to come meet with me. So he came and he met. And all of a sudden it, it hit me. The problem wasn't his structure or even his exegesis. The problem was he didn't know the one he was talking about. And I said, Matt, I know you're a preacher's son and that you've been in church your whole life, but I'm getting the sense that you really don't know Jesus. And he goes, you know, I thought the same thing. He said, these other people, when they preach, it's like they're talking about somebody they know. Is it possible to know Jesus? I went, yeah. And I literally talked to, to him about this whole concept. And he said, you know, I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard the gospel put that way. And he received Christ. His junior year, pastoral ministry major at Nyack College, he received Christ in my office. His third sermon was a lot better. I find preaching improves once you get saved. You know? So the reality is the Holy Spirit comes to do this work of conversion. Now, one other thing I want to say about this. Romans 8 verse 9 says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's what this is. This is talking about the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian unless the Spirit of God has birthed the new Spirit and in essence indwelled you. Um, so that's what it means. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to talk as we move on in this teaching about sanctification and second experiences following subsequent to salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, we're going to talk. But, and so people get all offended and they say, are you saying I don't have the Holy Spirit? I always say, no, you, you can't be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit has done this regeneration indwelling work. That's what it means to be a Christian. Um, and the other thing is that it changes our identity forever. You see, uh, you know the phrase, well, we're all just sinners saved by grace? Don't ever say that about yourself again. Because it's not true. Now, here's what I mean. You once were a sinner by identity, but you are no longer a sinner by identity. You were saved by grace, definitely. But don't say, well, I am a sinner saved by... You know what? You are a saint. Your identity has been changed forever. The Scripture is very clear that we are a new creation. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't sin, and I don't have time to do this, but the reality is, once that work, let me put it this way, imagine that that center circle with Adam and Eve was affected by sin at the core of their being. Now imagine just a cloud of that sinfulness expanding out and affecting their mind, their will, and their emotions, and even getting to their physical body. So sometime after the fall, uh, Adam and Eve wake up in the morning and uh, they got the sniffles and they have a sore throat because sin is where all that began. The depression, the anxiety, all the stuff in our emotions that are not in line with the peace and the fruit of God. Those are products, fruit, corrupt fruit of sin. And it permeates its way out. So that all of us are walking around uh, before we come to Christ with sin, in essence, as, at the core of our being, permeating and affecting everything. And then we come to Christ and the Spirit is born again, it is cleansed, it is renewed, it is completely white and clean in essence. But guess what? The cloud of our sinfulness still affects our mind, our will, our emotions. That's why Paul says our minds have to be renewed. 
That's why I think we need to bring our bodies into alignment with the Spirit of God within us. And so, just as sin permeates out and affects everything from our spirit, so once you come to Christ, we are to allow the Spirit of God to permeate out and affect everything, our mind, our will, our emotions. And the reality is, while outwardly you still look like you're wasting away, still struggling with this sin, at the core of your being, if you've come to Christ and experienced regeneration, you are no longer a sinner by identity. You're a saint. You're cleansed, you're washed, you're a new creation. And that identity issue is really important to grab onto. All right, let's move on. Um, did I go the right way? Yes. Conviction and guidance. After you come to Christ, uh, the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. He will not only speak what is on His own, He'll speak what He hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by talking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. John 16. Jesus is in essence telling the disciples, listen, um, just because I'm going to the Father doesn't mean that you're going to be orphans. I'm going to send a counselor, one called alongside the comfort. You're going to hear his voice. He's going to speak to you. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. Uh, folks, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We've got to develop the ability to hear God's voice. Um, and and I, I'll spend more time on this tonight, but that is a work of the Holy Spirit to lead you, to guide you, to sense what the Father is saying. Now, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that there's not a Christian in this place that hasn't heard the Holy Spirit speak and convict. I mean, how many of you have said something rude to somebody or done something rude, and as you're walking away, there's this inner voice that says, why did you say that? You need to go back and make that right. Okay? You ever had that happen to you? Okay, if you've ever had that happen to you, that sense that you're this guilt, this, this conviction, that's the Holy Spirit. And He not only wants to convict you of that kind of stuff, He wants to lead you into truth. He wants to give you insight. He wants to light up God's Word so that you begin to understand it on a whole new level. And so a work of the Holy Spirit post-regeneration is to lead us into this kind of intimacy. And again, that is the point. The point is that God wants intimacy with you. He doesn't want to just give you marching orders. He doesn't want to just convict you. He wants you in intimate relationship with Him. And Jesus is very clear that my sheep will hear my voice. And so we've got to recapture that hearing ear. We'll talk about that uh, tonight. All right. Now, let me go, uh, just, uh, I want to deal with uh, the sanctification piece and then we'll take a break before we move to empowerment. Here's a disclaimer of sorts and I want to put it right up front here. The rest of this outline that we're going to be talking about is not necessarily sequential in this chronological order. Uh, I, in, in other words, too often what I have seen happen in regard to these two doctrines that we're going to spend time on for the rest of our time, both holiness, sanctification, and empowerment uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit, what happens is a group of people have an experience with God in a certain way, and they develop a systematic theology complete with proof texts, and they build a whole denomination around it. 
Um, and it might have to do with holiness, the way they get sanctified, or it might have to do with empowerment. You know, for instance, let me pick on my Pentecostal brothers. Uh, most of you know that uh, Pentecostals believe that if somebody's going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the initial physical evidence that always accompanies the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And you know what? I believe what happened was many of them had that experience. Many of them did speak in tongues. It was legitimate. It was real. The problem, in my opinion, and I believe it's a problem with Scripture, is that they systematized it. And they said, if you have an empowerment experience with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. And so, you know, it becomes kind of a systematic theology that if your experience with the Holy Spirit doesn't look like theirs, then they kind of negate it. Now, now, don't just pick on the Pentecostals here, because the reality is, all the church does that. Um, depending on what branch of the church, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, you know, when I went through my doctrinal interview to be a pastor, um, my experience with the Holy Spirit leading me into sanctification wasn't exactly in the sequential order that they wanted it to come. And I got questioned over an hour on that very issue. And so because it didn't look like their experience, it was a problem. So what I'm saying is that we need to be very careful not to systematize what God is not systematizing. And the experiences that we're going to talk about are biblical and real, but we get into trouble when we compare ourselves and our own experience with everybody else's. Now let's get practical here for a minute. You ever been in a ministry time where God is moving and somebody really starts to get touched? I mean, maybe they're over there and they're under the spout where the glory pours out and they're just kind of shaking and weeping and, and just having a, a, an amazing time with God. Have you ever gone, I wish that would happen to me? You ever done that? I have. You know, I, I, I would, or how many of you go, boy, I'm glad that's not happening to me, okay? Um, the reality is, the problem comes when we start to compare the way someone else is experiencing God with our own experience. Because it can do several things. First of all, if you're over there going, man, why can't I experience God like that? You miss what God is doing in you. Because sometimes he comes like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire. But sometimes he comes like a gentle dove and a whisper. And when we are comparing and trying to get our experience to look like that person's, then we often miss what God is doing in us. And how many of you know, the still small voice can be just as powerful as the mighty rushing wind, if we're listening. Okay. Uh, the other thing that happens is that we start to expect that everyone we pray for is going to have the same experience that we did. And that's why, I don't know if you've ever been in churches where they have lines where they pray for you and, and push you over. I know you don't do that here, but uh, I've got to tell you a story about that. I've had that happen to me where I was being prayed for, and next thing I knew I was on the ground. It was God, and I was, I was just in His presence, and it was wonderful. But I have also had it happen where I'm standing there and all of a sudden I feel the person pushing me, okay? Now, I took the department head for Bible. He's now the associate dean for Bible and ministry here at night, Frank Chan. Um, we went to a meeting one time and we got in line to get prayed for. 
And so here's Frank. He's standing here, and I'm standing there. And they're coming down the line, and everybody they're praying for is going, they're just just going over, all right? And I'm like, cool, okay? Hope I got a big catcher, okay? And, uh, (laughs) And I'm standing there. And they start to pray. And I'm, believe me, I'm enjoying the Lord. I'm just standing there. And, but I'm not going over. It's not happening. So all of a sudden, I feel them pushing me a little bit. Well, now I get a little ticked and I start to push back. Okay? You know? And they're pushing harder and I'm pushing back. And, and now I am no longer thinking about God, but how I want to punch this guy in front of me, you know, who's pushing me over, you know? And, and finally, they get tired of dealing with stubborn, crazy Ron and they move on to Frank, okay? And so they start to pray for Frank, and I'm still standing there, uh, stiff-necked that I am, you know, and I'm still standing there, and all of a sudden, Frank goes over. And I'm like, wow! You know, so they move on, and I get down on the floor, and I lean over Frank, and I go, hey, Frank! What's up, man? So you went down, huh? And he opens one eye, and he goes, not really. <laughs> he said, um... I knew that if I continued to resist their pushing, I was going to develop a bad attitude, like you. Um, So I did a courtesy fall. I said, what? He said, yeah, I did a courtesy fall. And he said, now leave me alone because I'm having a good time with God. I said, all right, okay. Um, so, So here's what I'm saying. Listen, God can do anything. He comes upon people in a variety of ways and manifestations. The problem is, is when we try to get them to do it the same way every time. Or when we try to compare our experience with others. And all I'm saying to you is we need to allow God to be God when He comes and touches His people. And so, as we talk about these things, um, I, I think there's... I think the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify us and set us apart and make us holy. I also think He wants to empower us. But I have known people that have experienced one without the other. Okay? Now, um, the fourfold gospel in my denomination emphasizes the holiness, sanctification. The fourfold gospel is Jesus as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. Um, Many years ago, Amy Simple McPherson, who was the founder of the Foursquare denomination, a Pentecostal denomination, stole the fourfold gospel from the Christian Missionary Alliance. So the Foursquare Church, how many of you know the Foursquare Church? You heard of that? Okay. The Foursquare Church, their Foursquare gospel is Jesus our Savior, Baptizer, Healer, and Coming King. Now, what they did was they said, yeah, the CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, their focus is on holiness. We want the power. We want the baptism. Okay? So they switched the fourfold to the foursquare, changed it slightly. A few years ago, I was talking with a foursquare pastor, and he said, you know, I wish we could get our denominations together. Because if we could have the fivefold gospel, you know, we'd get the holiness we need, and you would get some of the power that we've been walking in. Now, he was joking, but I don't think it was too funny. I think it was right. Um, and the reality is, I, I know people, and you do too, that know how to walk in the power, but they're deficient in their character and sanctification. And I also know people that have embraced this character sanctification thing, but they're impotent when it comes to moving in the gifts and the power. 
And the reality is, as we begin to teach pneumatology, I think we've got to find a way to bring those together because power without character is better left in heaven because it hurts and corrupts and ultimately destroys. And so that's why many people avoid power because they've seen it without sanctification and without holiness. All right, let's talk about holiness first. Sanctification. There comes a point in every believer's life subsequent to salvation, after we get saved, when the Holy Spirit calls him or her to a deeper level of consecration, commitment, and surrender. That's what we were talking about last night. When we say yes to this call, the Spirit of God does a work within us to bring us to a new level of experiential holiness in every area of our lives. This work is both crisis and progressive. Uh, That means that there's going to be moments where God calls you deeper, moments where the Spirit of God ministers to you. I, I pray and hope that last night was one of those crisis moments for some of you as you relinquished idolatry, as you said, no more, Lord, I surrender. But it's also a progressive thing where we're going three steps forward often and two steps back and three steps forward and two steps back and we're growing in a progressive way. So it's not either or, it's both and. Let me move on. Um, one of my favorite verses on this issue is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. That means set you apart, make you holy completely, body, soul, spirit. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now, first of all, notice it's God doing the work of sanctification. Aren't you really glad for that first phrase where it says, may God himself, in fact, he says it twice, the God of peace, just so you know the source here, sanctify you. Aren't you glad that he doesn't say, may Ron work harder to sanctify himself? Because if he says that, I'm in deep trouble. And so it's God doing the work of sanctification. And notice he says that in his prayer, may your spirit, soul, and body may be kept blameless. Um, I love the way he phrases it because when he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless, blameless. He doesn't say, may you work hard to keep your whole spirit, soul, and body blameless. If, if my spirit, soul, and body are being kept, that means somebody else is doing the keeping. Do you understand? Don't miss that. Because your sanctification, first of all, you're not the source of it. Your holiness is not rooted in your good efforts. It comes from God. And secondly, He's the one that does the keeping. Now, my my daughter, Karis, she's uh, 17. She'll be 18 in February. When she was 10 years old, she came to me one day. She said, Dad, I've been thinking about something, and I'm worried. I said, what? She said, I'm worried that when I get to heaven, that I'm going to start the second fall. She's 10, okay? This is a 10-year-old girl. I said, what? She said, Dad, you know me. I sin all the time, and I mess up, and I make mistakes. You know, I'm, I'm your daughter, you know, so I get it naturally. And uh, she goes, but I'm worried about me. Dad, I'm, I'm worried that, that when I get to heaven, I'm going to mess up there, and I'm going to start this whole thing over again. I said, wait a minute. You're worried about being the second Eve? She goes, yep, that's it, because I'm just like her, Dad. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, what 10-year-old thinks this way? I'm, this is awesome, okay? 
And uh, I said to her, honey, the only thing I can tell you is this. The grace that gets you there is going to be enough to keep you there. And the grace that saves us and sanctifies us and keeps us blameless before Him is also the grace that's going to be sufficient for all times. And she goes, okay, good answer. And she walked away, went back to play. Um, but we're, we're being kept blameless. Uh, finally, notice it is the one who calls you that is faithful and He will do it. Um, and again, this is a helpful reminder when we're talking about holiness and sanctification because often what happens is that we begin in the right way by His grace and by His work, but then we try to accomplish it in our own strength. Now, let me mention one other place that this happens, and then we'll take a break. Um, this is a church with a lot of little kids. Okay? You guys are procreating. You're being faithful. You're being fruitful and multiplying. You got that commandment down. That's good, okay? Um, when you turn about 40, uh, you're going to have teenage kids. And you are going to have reached a level of maturity in Jesus and in God. And your expectation is that your kids are going to live at that level of maturity, okay? And one of the problems in the church, and this is kind of an insider's view, is that we forget that our process of sanctification was us hitting the wall, crashing and burning, coming back to Jesus, blowing it, messing up, you know, hitting the wall, going prodigal, coming back, saying, I'm sorry, and he receives us. We forget about our mess-ups, our screw-ups, our sin, our failures, our fallings. We forget that the reality of our sanctification is he kept bringing us back, bringing us back. And we get to about 40 or 45, and we now have teenagers, and we put an expectation that they're going to live at a level of holiness that took us 25 years to get to. And what happens in the body of Christ is that I think what happens with our teenagers is they either rebel against that and go prodigal, or they start to perform and go elder brother. Meaning... They do all the right things, but it's more of a performance than a heart issue. And um, le let me encourage you to allow your kids to be real, to be who they are. Don't always fight the battle for behavior. Make sure that you're willing to fight the battle for their hearts too. Because if we're always fighting the battle for behavior, the external, we may win that, but we'll lose their hearts, and in the end, we'll lose both battles. Do you understand? And so as a parent of teenagers myself, I've had to learn that there's times when I have to relinquish that and say, you know what, it's time for you to experience life and be real. And, and I fight the battle for their heart and not always for the externals. And that's what happens, I think, with sanctification and holiness. It's all about Jesus and His performance, not our self-effort. Um, finally, on this issue... Um, I love 2 Corinthians 3, 16-18. I referenced it last night. It says this, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me set the context for this for you. This is where Paul is talking about Moses 
and how he had to cover his face because they could not stand to see the glory. Their own sinfulness kept them from seeing the full expression of the glory of God. And so they forced Moses to cover his face. Now Paul transitions that in this passage and he says, To this day, when the law of Moses is read, a veil covers their faces. Okay? There, there's a, a, a clouding of their understanding of the freedom. And he goes on and he says, but that's not the way it's to be. In Christ, the veil is taken away and there's freedom. Now, here's the issue. We are no less sinful than they, are, they were. The issue is, we now understand that we deal with our sinfulness not by running away from His glory, but by running into His glory. And when we say, because of His grace and because of His mercy, we take the veil away and we ask that the full expression of your glory be meditated upon, be contemplated, and we will embrace all that you... That's when true holiness begins to take place. Um, True holiness is not cleaning up our act so that we can enter the presence of God. That's the way it used to be. I'm going to go through ceremonial cleansing. I'm going to do all the right stuff. True holiness is the recognition that we are utterly powerless to clean up our act, forcing us to come to Christ in complete brokenness. And so it's, it's, I have a friend that likes the prodigal story for his concept of sanctification. And he says, here's true sanctification. I sin, I fall away, I come back, and he receives me and forgives me. I run away, I sin, I come back, and he receives me, he forgives me. I blow it, I come back, you know, he forgives me, he receives me. After I've done that for a, for a few years, I begin to say, if he forgives me like this, how dare I hold anything against anybody else? And I begin to quickly forgive in the same way. And he says, when Christians begin to understand that we are to forgive in the way that we're forgiving, been forgiven, now true holiness begins to flow. And, um, and I think he's on to something. I'm not saying he has a complete picture but I think he's on to it. All right, let's pause there, take a break. Um, this section, um, I, I want to share a little bit of my testimony, and at the end I will finish it. So I'll start my own story in relation to what we're going to talk about, and then I'll finish it at the end. Um, in 1986, um, I was taking a full-time ministry position in Connecticut. Uh, I was going to be the youth pastor, associate pastor at a small church in Stratford. And um, I, I went forward at a Christian and Missionary Alliance camp meeting. And it was in the summer, and it was before I started the ministry. And I think it was July. And I, my wife and I were there at this service, and, and the pastor spoke on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the primary focus, because it was a Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, was on holiness and sanctification, what we just talked about. But the speaker kind of touched briefly on empowerment. Just, and that's what I heard. My ears tuned into that. And at the end of that sermon, I went forward with my wife. And we knelt at the altar. And when this man came to pray for us, I said, I said, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be empowered. I'm starting ministry next month, and I can't do this without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he laid hands on me and he prayed a prayer and he said, there, it's done. And I looked up at him and I go, it is? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And three days later, my wife looked at me and she goes, nothing happened to you. (laughs) And I said, I know. Um, And... uh, and, and one, one of the problems in my denomination is that we reacted against the Pentecostals and their evidence doctrine. And when I say we reacted, imagine it's like a pendulum, okay? And so here's, you know, the Pentecostals said when somebody gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're going to speak in tongues and their focus is on one or two manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And my denomination went, whoa, and we reacted... And we basically said, uh, not only is tongues not the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we reacted and said, there's no evidence. Okay? And, and, and both those positions are problematic, okay? Saying that one manifestation is always the evidence that something has happened, or saying, you don't need any evidence. And, um, and I went into ministry... And uh, we started to see some success because, you know, I'm kind of a smart guy and I know what to do and I know how to treat people. And we had young people started to come to our church and the church started to grow. Um, But by Christmas of that year, of 1986, that's when I looked at my wife and I said, if there's not some more power somewhere, I got to get out of ministry. I can't do this anymore. And... And it was then that I began my pursuit. Now, I shared with you last night um, the story of how I saw one of my first dramatic healings, and that kind of opened my eyes. But the more important event took place near the end of that conference, and I'll share that with you um, near the end of this teaching. But I want to talk about this whole issue of empowerment because I think it's something that's neglected. And I think the theology of it is, is, is neglected Uh, not only in churches where we're not experiencing it, but even in churches that are starting to experience empowerment, they often don't do good theology behind what they're experiencing. And so I think it's it's necessary for us to talk about this. Oops. Um, It starts with what I see in the life of Jesus. In Luke 4, Jesus takes the scroll. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unfolding it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what Jesus was declaring was in essence this. He needed the Spirit of the Lord to empower Him. Now, if you're like your typical evangelical, you look at that and go, wait a minute, but Jesus was fully God. Yes, he was, but he was also fully man. And I don't have time to fully develop this in this context, but the reality is the ministry of Jesus is a ministry of a human man, anointed, filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit, moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't negate that he was fully God, but in our attempt to defend the divinity of Christ, We have neglected the humanity of Christ. He was the second Adam. And 
Furthermore, I believe Jesus did his miracles and lived his life through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, that means this, that when Jesus sent his disciples out, he was sending them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he healed the sick. That's how he raised the dead. That's how he had words of knowledge and prophetic insight. That's how he taught with authority. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And I believe that the same empowerment that Jesus walked in, we can walk in. Now, did he have an advantage over us? Absolutely. He was fully God as well as being fully man. And so I'm not saying we can be exactly like Jesus, but I am saying this. The little bracelet, what would Jesus do, should mean more to us than just a piece of jewelry. Because what would Jesus do is what we can also do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit um, on Christ is the foundation for this. Um, A.B. Simpson, who's buried over here, has a commentary on Mark that's phenomenal. And in the uh, section of his commentary on the baptism of Jesus, he says this. Okay, I, I, This is an exact quote. Jesus was born of the Spirit at the virgin birth. The Spirit of God impregnated Mary, and he was born of the Spirit, the virgin birth. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism that he was empowered by the Spirit. Now, Simpson uses that analogy to talk about you and me. It's not a perfect analogy, but nonetheless it works to communicate some truth I think that's valuable. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8 says that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit, you don't know Christ. And that's regeneration. And so here today, if you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit. You've been born of the Spirit. But what Simpson goes on to say is, but a believer who's been born of the Spirit is not fit for ministry until they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus didn't do any miracles, didn't do any ministry until the Spirit of God came upon him. He was born of the Spirit, just like you and I are born of the Spirit at regeneration, but he needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, when does this take place? When does it happen? Um, subsequent to salvation, oops, things are going crazy on me here. Let me back up. Um, and let me just go through a couple passages. In John chapter 20, verse 22, uh, we have a verse that is overlooked a lot in the church. And this is where John is speaking to the disciples. And I actually believe that this is the Johannine uh, version of the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. But I think this is John giving us a, a fuller theological understanding of what else is happening at the Great Commission. When Jesus speaks and says to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that... He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, and if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, some of you who have maybe heard teaching on this have heard that Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit comes in the upper room, is the initiation of the church. I believe this is the initiation of the church. 
I believe Acts chapter 2 is the empowerment of the church, as is Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 10 and subsequent empowerings continuing. But I think this, in essence, is the beginning of the new covenant church age. I think this is regeneration here at this point. Now, if you want to read up on this a little bit further, I want to recommend a book to you. Okay? Uh, the book is by a, a wonderful pastor-scholar named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a phenomenal reformed pastor in London uh, during the 40s, 50s, 60s. And uh, his book, Joy Unspeakable, is on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the first place that I heard this concept that John chapter 20, verse 22, is the initiation of the church. That's regeneration. And that Acts 2 is the empowerment of the church was from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I think it's well-founded uh, on Scripture. Now what that means is that Acts chapter 2 is the empowerment of the church and after salvation and, and notice that it's in the context of Jesus saying to the disciples, listen, don't do anything. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He puts them on mission. And before they go on mission, they need to be empowered. And so Acts chapter 2 is the empowerment of the church. Now, here's my position. Every Christian has a John 20, 21 experience with the Holy Spirit. You've all been regenerated. You've all had, in essence, Jesus breathe on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit and new birth has come to you. Not every Christian has an Acts chapter 2 experience. Um, you know, I, I had someone tell me once, no, you know, every Christian, it only happened once in Acts chapter 2 and we just kind of received by faith that the whole church has been empowered. Listen, if the whole church was walking in Acts chapter 2 empowerment, it wouldn't look like it looks today. And, and can I be honest and tell you that if my life was fully reflecting Acts chapter 2 reality, my life wouldn't look like it looks today. Because I, I'm not convinced that a one-time baptism filling encounter is enough. And, and that's also founded on Scripture because as we look at the passages, you will notice that the same people that were filled in Acts chapter 2 got filled again in Acts chapter 4. You know what that tells me? That tells me, and Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say this, I need to be continually filled and baptized by the Holy Spirit for this reason. I leak. And, and to be honest, I think that's God's plan. We leak out all over. Okay? And, and that's his plan. Uh, but if you look in the passages in Acts, there is an expectation that God wants to do it again, baptize us, fill us. And, uh, and so there's an expectation that it's ongoing. Let me move on. Um, in Acts chapter 1, this is just what I talked about. He, he calls them to receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, the empowerment came. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is not limited to a one-time experience. I believe there's to be an ongoing expectancy that the Holy Spirit wants to fill and refill the believer again and again. Now, I, I am thankful for what God did in my life that I'm going to share in a little bit in 1987. And I want you to know I'm also very thankful for what God did in my life in 1993. And I could tell you an amazing story about 1993. And I'm also incredibly thankful for what God did in my life in 1995. I had an encounter with the Lord that just powerfully changed me and brought transformation. And I'm also thankful for what God did in 1998. It was amazing. But I have to tell you something. I'm ready for what God wants to do in 2009. And, and I'm saying, more, Holy Spirit. Do whatever you want to do. I need more of you, more of your empowerment. And so it's not just a one-time filling. Um, you know, and I'm thankful for that, because when I was a kid, we had this guy in church, and every Sunday night he used to stand up and testify. Okay? This guy would stand up and he would go, I praise God, 35 years ago I was saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, I was saved and sanctified, and, and I always wanted to add, and petrified, you know, because this guy never smiled, and he was mean to kids when adults weren't looking, okay? And I remember he would testify, and I would say, I don't know what that guy has, but I don't want it. And, uh, and, and I, I think the reality is, if, if you've had an experience, an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and grown complacent in it, your final state can often be worse than your prior state. And, and so there's to be a continuing expectation of more. Acts chapter 4, I just want to go through a, a few passages and show you, point out some things. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Now, I want you to notice as we go through these that there's always evidence when the Spirit of God fills a group of people. But notice, even in these passages, it's not always the same evidence. In Acts chapter 2, yes, they spoke in tongues. Yes, there were spiritual manifestations like tongues of fire. We don't know completely what that was. I think I've felt something similar in different places and times, but we don't know exactly what it was. They're trying to describe a spiritual experience in earthly terms, and that always falls short. But here, they preach the Word of God boldly. Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now again, there's the tongues, but they're also praising. Praise is erupting. And, and so there's more than just one evidence. Acts chapter 13 the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And joy unspeakable was the evidence. So I'm going somewhere with this. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. But I want to see you to see the evidence from Scripture is that there is an empowering filling of the Holy Spirit on believers. It happens more than once to some of them. And there's more than one evidence of that. Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, the term disciple is used for a follower of Jesus here. So remember, these are Christians. These are followers of Jesus. 
And Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest, uh, I think we could have this conversation with many churches in America. Uh, I have kids come both to Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary from evangelical churches, and I start to talk about the Holy Spirit, and their eyes get wide. I had one person say, you know, my pastor told me to avoid anybody that talked about the Holy Spirit. And I went, really? I said, what denomination was your pastor? And I'm not going to tell you, okay? Because the reality is, it, it breaks my heart that, that we've lost this understanding of what God wants to do. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and that's good. That's the way in. That's how you got regenerated. That's why you're a disciple. But there's more. He told the people to believe in the one that was coming after him, and that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. Now here, prophecy is a manifestation of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so why did he ask the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Hint, I don't think this is a regeneration question. He, he wants them to go further than just getting saved. Do you hear me? You've got to go further than just getting saved and walk in the fullness of all that God has for you. So how do we describe it? I, somebody you know, told me once I was, I, before I started this teaching, he said, you know, I don't mind you talking about the Holy Spirit, but you need to stop talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, really? I said, why? He said, because the Pentecostals made that phrase up. I go, I don't think so. I think it's in the book. Okay? I think Jesus used that phrase, and he did. And so there's, there's people that are hung up over phrases because they've become connected with different experiences, and they've come to me, which I do think we need to reassess our vocabulary from time to time, but I don't think we should jettison the reality beneath the vocabulary. Okay? Uh, how do we describe it? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the unction, a guy named E.M. Bounds wrote a book called Power Through Prayer. I mean, anybody read Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds? Okay. He calls it the unction. I like that one because you can't function without the unction. You know? Anyhow, it'll preach. Okay. Uh, you know, the anointing, uh, the spirit-filled life. In my denominational background, they like to talk about the crisis experience. My suggestion, call it whatever you want. Just don't live without it. You know, I, I, I really want us to get beyond the vocabulary and the superficial, but as long as we're living with the tangible reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me talk experientially here for a minute, because I have a suspicion that some of you have tasted the baptism filling of the Holy Spirit and, and, and may not even know it. Um, you know, I, I think you do know it, and once I point it out, you'll recognize it. But while every Christian is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and therefore has the Holy Spirit, not every Christian is living in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Um, next. Oops. Sorry. Um, one day, as Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present 
for him to heal the sick. Now, I want you to notice that it says the power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. Um, That suggests to me that there were other times where the power of the Lord was not present to heal the sick. My impression is that Jesus is walking along and all of a sudden he feels something, senses something, he knows that God's Spirit is here in this place to heal. I think it's called what I call the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, evangelicals like to say that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon believers or people for empowerment. Like the Spirit of God came upon the kings and the prophets. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Well, which is it? I think it's both. I think the Holy Spirit continues to do it both ways. Let me talk practically here for a minute. How many of you have ever gotten down on your knees to pray and you started praying and your prayer was going nowhere? It was like like Charlie Brown's teacher. You ever had those kind of prayer meetings? Okay. And, And how many of you, you've been praying and all of a sudden something kicks in? And the anointing, whatever you want to call it, comes and the prayer stops going from here out and all of a sudden it starts to flow. Or how many of you have been in a worship service where you're worshiping along and all of a sudden the songs cease to become just songs that I'm singing off the overhead and all of a sudden they begin to flow and you feel His presence, His manifest presence come. Another example, you're talking to somebody Maybe it's another brother or sister and you're sharing some wise counsel or wisdom and all of a sudden you start to speak to them and you can see it going straight to their heart, ministering to them, edifying them and and all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, I should be writing this down. This is really good. Because you know it's not coming from here, it's coming from the Lord. That is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I I think that's the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to experience in a regular, ongoing way. It happens with teaching and preaching. For those of you that have done any teaching and preaching, you'll stand up, you'll start to preach, you'll start to teach, and initially it feels like you're wading through oatmeal, you know? know, And if that's the way it is the whole sermon, everybody feels like they're sitting in oatmeal, listening to you, okay? But then all of a sudden the presence of the Lord comes and it's almost like a divine hand comes upon you and the words start to flow and the Spirit of God God starts to pierce hearts and go to the deep places. That's the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit. Folks, listen. That is what the Spirit of God wants us to live in expectation of. A few years ago, I was in an elders meeting and we were doing a discipline case with a man in our church. And the Spirit of God came and mercy broke through and this man repented and we were able to pray for him and full restoration took place. And I was driving home that night from the meeting and I said, Oh God, thank you for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the way you came in that meeting. And the Lord spoke to me and said, and by the way, I was speeding on the freeway on my way home as I was praying, and the Lord spoke to me and said, my anointing is not just for the elders meeting, it's for the way you drive. And, and what he was in essence saying was this, the anointing, the filling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, folks, is not just for what we perceive as ministry, it's for life. 
It's for everything. It's for the way we live our lives and recreate and, and live it out with our friends, with our family, with people around us. And so the coming upon effect of the Holy Spirit is for all of us. The New Testament and church history support the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit at special times and ministries. E.M. Bounds called it the unction, while others have referred to it as the anointing. What are the results? Okay, What, what should we expect to happen? What's it going to look like? Now, here's where we get into trouble. I am not saying that if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. But listen, I am also not saying that if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not speak in tongues. Do you understand? Uh, I was at a meeting a few years ago, and the guy was preaching on the, the, the filling of the Spirit, and it was great, right up until he got to the end. And it was a youth conference, and he said, all right, now we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us in this place today. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, stand up. And 5,000 kids stood to their feet, ready to receive. And I'm thinking, man... We, it is about to blow, man. It's, this is going to be fun. This is going to be good. Because 5,000 teenagers were going, I want everything you have, God. Then this guy said this. Now, before I pray, let me tell you what is not going to happen. No one is going to speak in tongues. No one is going to fall over. No one is going to laugh uncontrollably. No one is going to make noise. No one's, and he started to go off on all the things that were not going to happen. And I'm sitting there going... Uh, God, is this okay with you that he dictates how you're going to come and touch people? And the reality is what happened is it just, it just quenched the spirit in that moment. And he prayed a little perfunctory prayer. And I, I think, praise the Lord, some people may have gotten filled. But I often wonder what would have happened if he had simply said, we're going to allow God to be God in this place and, uh, and let it come. Now, what are the experiential results? I think you'll have these evidences in your life. I don't know which order they'll come, but and I don't think this is all an inclusive list, but intimacy with God in worship. When I got filled with the Spirit, the first thing that happened to me was that it felt like the love of God was poured from the top of my head into the bottom of my feet, and, and my life was... I didn't speak in tongues, I didn't fall over... But I knew his love. In Ephesians, it talks about being sealed in his love. And so the intimacy with God went to a whole new level. That was the primary evidence in my life. Love beyond reason. Joy unspeakable. Indescribable peace. Zeal for holiness. Boldness in evangelism. Spiritual power and authority. Release of spiritual gifts. And, and I'm not going to necessarily say which one all of a sudden the gifts begin to flow prophecy hospitality things that have never been empowered and released begin to flow in your life and certainly the fruit of the spirit and healing and other things that begin to flow and so my own experience where i i knelt at this altar and i said i am hungry for god i want to be filled with the spirit and this guy prayed a prayer over me he went there it's done receive it by faith Folks, uh, you know, like my wife said, three days later, nothing happened to me. Um, and, and I think that it may have been that that maybe wasn't the timing. Uh, the Lord was increasing my hunger for more of Him. And, and what happened is over the next few months, He began to break me. And I began to say, God, I, I've got to experience what You have for me. This thing is not always instantaneous. 
See, I, I wish I could tell you that at the end of this time, I'm going to have you come up and every single one of you are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The truth is, some of you, this weekend, the Lord's just creating a space for you to be hunger, hungry for it. For some of you, this may be the culmination and, and God is going to touch you in a very deep way uh, on this weekend. For some of you, you're going to go off alone this afternoon and spend some time and the Spirit of God is going to meet you. Uh, I think it's going to look different in all of us and we're all at different times and places. And so we have to be, in essence, saying, Lord, I want to be on your timetable, not on my timetable. Let me give you a couple uh, testimonies of this. Uh, Tozer said, I've never met a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. Okay? Um, I think what he means by that is there's going to be evidence in your life that something profound and dramatic has happened, that God has done something that you haven't experienced before. Charles Finney, here's his testimony. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love. No words could express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. Makes me wish we had an audio recording of old Finney when this happened you know, to him. Uh, because he couldn't describe it, what happened. Dale Moody said, um, well, Moody's experience, let me just give you a brief thumbnail sketch. He was already a successful pastor. His church was growing, and he noticed there were two older women uh, on the second pew. And as he was preaching, he noticed that they were praying. They weren't listening, they were praying. And so he went to them after one of the sermons and he said, hey, I noticed that you guys are praying while I'm preaching. What are you praying for? They said, Pastor, we're praying that God would fill you and empower you with His Holy, Holy Spirit. And he was offended by that. He was a little offended that they were praying that this successful pastor would be filled. But he was on a trip to New York. He was walking down Wall Street. You know, who would have thought that the Holy Spirit would show up on Wall Street? We actually need Him to, don't we? And, <laughs> for those of you that are in the finance industry and for the rest of us too. But this is where that happened. Oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed Himself to me and I had such an experience of His love that I had to ask Him to stay His hand. Another example, Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham heard Stephen Olford preach. How many of you have ever heard Stephen Olford preach? An old British guy. He was one of a spiritual emphasis week speakers uh, when I was a student back in the 80s. And a few years ago, I went to hear him again in New York City. He was, he's 85. And when he preaches, he wears a suit and he shoves his suit coat up like this and waves his arms like a crazy man. He's one of the best preachers I ever heard. But uh, Billy Graham heard Stephen Olford and said, I don't know what it is he has, but I want it. And went to England and spent time with him. And in a hotel room, they prayed together. And Graham asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Laughing hilariously, he described his experience saying, I'm filled, I'm filled, I'm filled. This is the turning point in my life. This will revolutionize my ministry. And Graham describes it in his autobiography. Final thoughts. The work of the Holy Spirit is for every believer. It is not a reward it is a gift. Um, let me finish my own story, and then we'll pray. And I know we have lunch in about ten minutes, so we won't get to go to the small groups. Um, 
I'm hungry for God, 1986. I start to pray. I, I said, Lord, I'm desperate. I've got to have what you have for me, all that you have. And uh, my elders send me to this conference in Anaheim, California. Um, I, I walk into the conference, and uh, I'm standing there on the first night worshiping. They all have their hands in the air. I have my hands in front of me like this. As I'm standing there worshiping, all of a sudden my left leg begins to shake violently. Okay? I tap the person I'm with, the other pastor on the shoulder. I go, my leg is shaking. I wonder what's wrong. He said, I think it's God. I said, why is God shaking my leg? He said, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? Which, ask God why he... Sh- well, this shaking, we would come into worship. This was on Sunday night. Every night we'd come into worship. Every morning we'd come into worship. This shaking began with my left leg. It ended up both my legs were shaking. By Wednesday of that week, we'd, they'd start worship. I had no emotion. I had no tears. I still was very cerebral. My whole body would shake. Uh, to this day, I've asked the Lord often, God, why was that happening to me in that moment? In, in essence, this is the only answer I've ever got. Ron, I was showing you that you're not in control and that I am. Um, At that conference on Monday night, a man walked up to me. His name was Joe Langford. He said, young man, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes. And he said, you're not ready, and walked away from me. He did that on Monday. He did that on Tuesday. He did that on Wednesday. By Thursday, he came up and said, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes. And he goes, you're not ready. I was ready to punch him, okay? And, uh, and, and he asked me that every day, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I would say, yes, that's why I came here. I came, I want God to fill me. And he would say, you're not ready yet. And he would walk away. So on Friday night, the end of the conference, the man that was leading the conference said, some of you pastors have come and you're desperate for God to fill you. You want to be empowered. You want Jesus to do uh, through you what he did in his own ministry if that's you come to the front and I went forward to the front that night and I was desperate I'm thinking oh God I've seen people healed I've seen all sorts of things I've heard excellent teaching but God I came to be filled and I, I went forward and, uh, and I was standing there just desperate and who shows up in front of you at Joe Langford and he looks me in the eyes and he goes Are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I went to say yes. But when I opened my mouth, all I could do was sob. And the tears came. By the way, I hadn't wept since I was 12 years of age. And the Lord broke my heart and I just started to sob. And he went, ah, you're ready. And he put his arms around me and he said, Father, fill him. And it was like the top of my head was taken off and the love of God was poured in Um, It it was, folks, probably more powerful for me than my salvation experience because I was saved at the age of five. I think I got saved like 30 times before I was five, okay? My dad came to me one night at the altar and he goes, look, write this date down in your Bible, you're saved, okay? Don't come up here again. Um, (laughs) He regretted that later. Uh, (laughs) But the reality is it was was one of the most meaningful moments of my life. Uh, When I got home... My wife hadn't gone to the conference with me. She looked at me and she said, Who are you? What have you done with my husband? Because there was a passion for worship, 
for intimacy with God, for His Word, for, for evangelism. And, and it fundamentally changed the DNA of my life in God. And what I'm saying to you is I, I want to create an expectancy that God wants to do more in you, but I also don't want you to have an agenda. And so my suggestion is, as we close out this teaching on the Holy Spirit, is that you ask with expectancy without agenda. Now what does that mean? It simply means you go to God and say, God, I want all that you have for me, but I relinquish and release my agenda as to what it's going to look like. Uh, In other words, I'm not going to come and ask expecting to fall over. Or I'm not going to come and ask assuming that it's going to be tongues. Or I'm not going to come and ask assuming that it's not going to be tongues. Whatever your agenda or your anti-agenda is, it's time to let loose of it. And just say, God, I want you to be God. I want all that you have for me. Secondly, don't compare... Excuse me, I went too fast. Don't compare your experience with others. And that means uh, during this weekend, as we worship and as we have times of prayer and ministry, uh, don't look around and go, ooh, I want that to happen to me. Or I don't want that to happen to me. Uh, Don't compare. Just enjoy what God's doing in you. Because I guarantee you this, the Lord is doing something in you. And often we are missing what He's doing in us because we're looking at what He's doing in somebody else. And so don't compare. Secondly, or thirdly, focus on Jesus. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. It's all about His beauty. And and that's what the Holy Spirit will enhance and bring to the surface in your life, this love affair with Christ. Uh, So focus on Him. And then allow your hunger for more of Him to grow without demanding instant answers. In in other words, um, I'm not in in control of the timing of when this is going to happen for you or what it's going to look like. All I can do is lay out the truth and say, there's more for you and allow it it to be part of your expectancy that's growing. Okay, will you all stand with me? Smith Wigglesworth once said this, I would rather have a man or a woman on my platform who has never received